News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Pete Callender here. Thank you, Rob, for your call at the uh, end of the last hour. It's a sentiment. It's one of the... So, for people who don't know, I will let you know right now, and I don't hide it, uh, I'm a gamer. I like to... Uh, I'm a Gen Xer. I was, uh, you know, played the Nintendo 64, Mario Brothers, and Tecmo Football, and all that, and uh, bought one of the first... I've owned every generation of Xbox over the years, and... Um, so I'm a gamer, and so you can play online with people, and I I'm, I play under an assumed identity, and uh, as everybody does, basically, right? Uh, and so, uh, but I, I <clears throat> excuse me, I don't play a lot. I, I don't do shooter games and that sort of stuff. But uh, there's a guy that I have been playing with for I don't know, probably ten years now. Black guy from Dallas, Texas. And he said the same thing to me the first time I met him that Rob said. He said, I'm not an African-American. I'm just an American. <laughs> he told me that story about how he had gone in to get hired in his job interview. And uh, he put down on the, on the uh, application, when they asked race, he just wrote American or human. I think he wrote human on the application under race. And when the interviewer asked him about it, he said, I'm just an American. We're all just Americans. And he got the job. That's the kind of guy that, like, I can, and we don't agree. Like, we talk about stuff, uh, all sorts of stuff over the years. He wasn't a Trump supporter, but he's not a leftist. Um, But that's somebody I can find common ground with. And, uh, and I have. So I appreciate Rob's sentiment expressed like that. I do. And I think part of the problem is that Democrats have convinced black Americans that they are the party for them. And black voters vote 90% for Democrats. And I've said for years that if the time ever comes when black voters vote like every other race or any other racial demographic, Democrats won't win any longer. So Democrats have a a vested interest in making sure black voters as a voting block to the extent that they do right now, they have to keep that block intact. And that means they will do virtually anything because if they don't and black voters start migrating over to the Republican Party and you start to see somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 70 or 80 percent voting block instead of a 90 percent voting block, Democrats are done. They are done. This is why you you got a glimpse of it right now going on with the Hispanic voters, right? Hispanic voters are breaking towards the GOP. You see some of the the reaction, and now you're starting to see some of the backlash against it, right? Where like, oh, they're white adjacent, and and they're not really true minorities and all this stuff. Asian voters have had the same sort of thing done to them. Um. And again, this goes back to the story. I mentioned it just the other day about the uh, tech or the um, uh, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe and uh, Ed Rendell from Pennsylvania talking about all of the lawsuits that they were going to be filing against all of the Republican legislatures over voting laws and redistricting because the point the point was not even to win the cases, which would be fine if they did, but it wasn't to win. 
It was to smear the GOP as racists for a generation. That was the point. Because that's how you keep the voters on your side. Black voters on your side for, for the Democrats. And they told this to Dan Forrest, our lieutenant governor, because they thought he was a Democrat when he, when he showed up at the big event. When they found out he wasn't, they then tried to say that, oh, you know, we were just kidding about all that. This has been the strategy. And as more people wake up to it, I think, the better off we'll be, hopefully. I think this also is why there is this, uh, you know, this more and more fevered pitch around critical race theory and that sort of stuff. Although I think some of that is back, uh, is, uh, that's creating a backlash as well. I think it's backfiring on uh, a lot of leftists. I think, but I'm not sure. I think so, because some of the things, the, the paths that they're walking down are so radical that most people see it for what it is. People of all races, they see it for what it is. It's divisive. It's kind of racisty. Makes all sorts of stereotypical assumptions. Castigates people based on ancestry, which I was told you shouldn't do. You have an entire generation, my generation, Gen X, that, you know, we thought, we thought, you know, united colors of Benetton, man. We were, we're all equal. The civil rights movement came along and they made all the sacrifices. They got us to a more perfect union. And it's just a different generational soup that uh, we come out of, you know? And... All of a sudden, it seems like there are a lot of people that are trying to drag us backwards. And it's, it's these leftists. And I think that that is not a message that resonates. I hope it's not a message that resonates uh, with a lot of people. But uh, this idea, let me play this clip again. This was Vilma Leak at the county commission meeting last night after receiving a report on the way forward crime prevention office plan to reduce gun assaults and homicides by 10% over five years and... Uh, it identified as uh, 90% of the homicide victims and perpetrators are young black men. And she tied it to Donald Trump. I'm tired of going to funerals. I'm tired of weeping and moaning over issues of this community and this country. We were moving pretty smoothly at one time. And then when the political arena got involved with Trump and that crowd, and the boys out of Virginia, wherever they're from, hatred began to rise, hating each other, black men disliking black women and wanting to tell us what to do, and I, the opposite. I do, I, I don't I'm speaking this. from what I have experienced and what I know and what I'm experiencing today as I sit here. I, I don't understand with the black men hating on the black women, disliking black women, and uh, and then the opposite of that. I, I don't I don't understand what that's about either. Fully acknowledge that. <laughs> no idea what she's talking about there. Don't know if she knows what she's talking about. Like I said, sometimes she walks down these rhetorical alleyways, ends up at a dead end, and then just kind of you know calls on the the was it the due machina or machina the, the 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 chair of God right to come down and lift you. Do you know what that means? I don't even know how how to say D E U X. Is it Dukes? Do it. What is it? Dues Mashina. So there you go. Dues Mashina. Thank you, Chris. Dues Mashina. Right. That's the chair of God. It was an old. It was a, a a trick, a technique back in the olden days when they would put on plays 
uh, for the people, and uh, they would put the hero into some sort of uh, an inescapable situation, and then they would have this chair of the gods come down, and the hero would get on the chair, and the chair would would rise away, and it was understood that <laughs> that the gods had come down and plucked the hero from the inescapable situation. It's a trick. It's a gimmick. It's cheap, right? It's what bad playwrights do or movie. And you've seen this uh, as well in shows and movies. Like, there's no way somebody could get out of that. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, some, quote, lucky break happens that's completely unbelievable, right? That's what that is. Or they'll just kind of rewrite it in the next scene to make it seem like the thing that they showed you didn't actually happen. And it wasn't actually so inescapable after all. That's another technique. So that's what she does. She says these types of things. Oh, this is just my experience. And what I see here as I, or as I sit here, this is what I see. So I I don't know if she understands everything that she's saying. She's like 80 something, I think. So I don't know. Oh, uh, Joe Biden. Also, he gave an address. I think he's taking more of the oil. Um, yeah, apparently the midterm election is the emergency that we've been hoarding all the oil for all this time. I didn't realize that. I thought, right, I thought that the oil, uh, strategic oil reserve was there in case of, you know, like, war against us or, uh, you know, like, hurricanes knocked out a whole bunch of uh, oil refineries, stuff like that. Um, we needed to roll military and everything got shut down, like an EMP went off or something. But no, apparently it's uh, Democrats' prospects in the midterm election. That's the emergency we've been planning for all this time. So, All right, so County Commissioner Bill Malik, upon hearing the crime stats at the unveiling of the county's five-year 10% reduction in gun assaults and homicides plan, the way forward, they call it. Um, she first says that uh, they don't know who they are, but they are not allowing us, meaning black people, she said, to sit down and solve our own problems. She doesn't explain how that's occurring. She then intimates that there needs to be more money, but that money is going someplace else, that we're spending all this money on other people, other agencies or something, but never says what that is, but then says, you know what I'm talking about, right? And then the staffer says, oh, yeah. Nobody else does, apparently. But I, well, I shouldn't say nobody else. I don't. It's not readily apparent to me. And uh, then she says this is Trump's fault, apparently, because when Trump came along and the boys out of Virginia, wherever they were from, she said they, uh, and I assume that meant Charlottesville uh, with the tiki torches and stuff, that that, that, that that prompted hatred to rise. And then she said something about Black men disliking black women, and I'm not sure if that's like an interracial dating thing or something that she's opposed. I, I don't know. But she did say that she wants more money. Well, she said economic opportunities and education. So I'm assuming, and she's a longtime school board member, so I'm assuming that she's wanting a whole bunch of money pumped into the school system. I don't know. If you're not educated, you can't read, write, and do anything, and you feel inferior. I was saying to the psychologist today, the psychiatrist today. What? Wait, I what? ache because when children at a young age come to school, black boys, the first thing they want to give them is medication to calm them down. 
But other boys, oh, they're active. Let them play. Let them have a good time. Really? Is that true? My understanding is that white boys are heavily medicated as well. Think Vilma Leek might have some, dare I call it, prejudiced ideas about white people. I think Velma might be a bit of a bigot. Seriously. White boys are medicated at very high rates. I would even venture to guess higher than black boys. But this does speak to... See, there is a piece to what she's saying that is true, which is the K-12 model is built for female education, predominantly. Not so much male education. Oh, is that controversial? I don't think that's controversial. The the K-12 model appeals to... Here's the classic example. You've been in a class, usually an English class, and they tell you to write a journal. Like, I am... What is it? Left brain? Is that the the writing side, the creative side? I enjoy writing i don't keep a journal i don't i don't keep a journal i used to write books fictional books and stuff when i was a kid never kept a journal the idea that you would try to get boys to keep journals indicates the model doesn't understand boys just gonna throw that out there and yes this is predicated on an assumption that boys and girls are different discipline and parents we need to hold our parents accountable for their children do agree with that stop sweeping it under the rug don't know what that means that's where it begins at home yes and i can say that where some of you may not want to say it that's probably true too you don't know what i feel you don't know how i feel or how a parent feels and we're saying to black boys when you stop by the policeman be careful what you say And a lot of times our kids are not trained to accept anybody telling them what to do because they know it all. That's true, too. And they feel that a bullet is the answer, and that's not the answer. All I'm pleading with is change the philosophy and allow us who have the problem to come up with some recommendations and some changes. Because as long as it's haphazardly here, and haphazardly there, and she may have the answer, he may have the answer, put the money where it's needed and put the people who can make it happen, make it happen. And we ought to be held accountable as elected officials handling money, all kinds of money. Get upset because we talk about you not educating my children. Yes, I'm upset because poverty is the answer. Poverty. Services that we have today from social service, we need, they're getting double doses of social services. So you can't say we're not doing our job uh, uh, from that perspective. See, here's the problem. Vilma just walked herself into another one of those alleys because she, she realized maybe she forgot she was thinking she was on, back on the school board or something, you know, touting education. But remember, they control the school board budget. But Town education, but then she shifts over to this thing that, you know, poverty. Well, poverty, and then she says, you know, they got double dipping, basically. They got double the services. They're getting all these services. And then it seems like she realizes, oh, wait, that's our purview. We do that. So I can't be, I can't be accusing us 
of not helping people enough. So she's like, well, we're doing our part, right? But here's the thing. Let's take as her uh, premise this assumption uh, as correct that poverty is the answer, or I guess is the root of the problem with the crime. All right, so let's assume poverty is the reason. Okay. Glad you mentioned poverty because there are three things that I can point to that if you do these three things, the chances you will be in poverty are very, very, very low, like single-digit low as a percentage, tiny. And if you are in poverty, you will get out of poverty. Here are the three things, and you're going to get it for free. And I didn't come up with these. Some expert egghead at the Brookings Institution did, which is the lefty think tank. They're the ones that came up with this. Three things. Have a job. Any job. Number two, get a high school diploma. And number three, don't have kids until you graduate and be married. That's it. Those are the three things. You do those three things, chances are overwhelmingly likely that you will not be in poverty. So maybe uh, maybe we should teach that. Hmm? What do you think? Could that be part of the way forward? News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. Here's a, a tweet. It's another Pete tweet from App Patriot Girl who says, Vilma Leak needs to get out of Charlotte politics. Your caller Rob was spot on. So the last clip here from Vilma Leak at last night's county commission meeting, she says, basically, uh, white people uh, do not understand. Did you just... Don't get it. And uh, then she references, this is what caller Rob referenced as well, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report. Back 40 years ago, I want to say, during, or I think he wrote it, hang on a second, during LBJ. Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, under LBJ. So that would have been 60s, 70s, right? So yeah, 40 years ago. And Moynihan was a sociologist, if I recall correctly, and he had argued that the decline of the nuclear family was the cause for poverty in the black population. That was the premise of his piece, uh, of this report. That was, by the way, apparently was never intended to be published. It was drafted in order to help advise LBJ, right, creator of the great society, right? So... Uh, Vilma says that the white folks don't understand, and then she makes this reference. Here it is. Spend a moment, spend an hour, spend a week being rejected, talked down to, misled, non-respect. Okay, let me just stop this here for a second. This is a classic example of TIV. The tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Now, I don't know if she's actually uh, exhibiting this because this is her uh, mindset or if she's just drawing this up because she's a politician and she knows that this plays. But I also know that the more you play this game, the easier it is to play it and you get sort of stuck in, in this same rut, 
where everything it's like I always say this, right? When you start looking at things through the racial prism, you see everything through the racial prism and not everything has a racial component to it. People who see race, uh, people who see everything through a racial prism might be suffering a bit too much from racism. Just going to throw that out there. So this, what she just said, I'll re-rack it and take a listen again. This is a classic example of a tendency for interpersonal victimhood. Because what she is describing, this is a, is a constant state of rejection in all things, everywhere, all the time, which I would submit is unrealistic. It is hyperbolic. But she either, again, assuming this is what she really feels, and I will assume she is doing that, not just doing it for cynical political motive. I will assume this is how she feels. It seems to me, if this is how you view all of society, all I mean all of society now that you know, Trump came and, and did what he did for those four years and, and made it all like this, right? As we heard her earlier. Um, if this is the way you view everything, it affects how you view everyone, how you relate with all other people. And you can't get out of the spiral. You're not going to be able to. And it's just so destructive. You end up lacking empathy for other people. You engage in self-destructive behavior. It robs you of initiative. It, it prompts you to put blame on other people. Uh, and then uh, you never do self-examination, right? This has been a, this has been a, I'm trying to remember what they call it. It's not a disorder. It's, um, I want to say it's a, character trait or something that has been identified by psychologists. They call it the TIV, the Tendency for Interpersonal Victimhood. And yes, it does work at a community level, at a macro level for in-groups, out-groups, similar cohorts, race, ethnicity, gender. And when you starve you, and this, by the way, this is happening on the right as well. Constantly being the victim. You ever notice how many lefties are able to call righties snowflakes now, which never used to be the case. But now all of a sudden, a lot of people on the right are playing victim too. You know why? Because cultures have different, um, cultures reward and, uh, and, and amplify and celebrate different character traits through time, right? You, you, could, have a, you could have a society built around uh, merit, or chivalry, for example. Um, and our culture is now reordering itself around underdog. Because everyone loves an underdog, right? So whoever is the victim, whoever is the the one that's been abused, they become elevated. And so what you realize very quickly when you live in a society like that is that if I get victimized, I get more purchasing power in the society, right? I get more political capital. So I I look around to find ways that I too am the abused. And here's the thing. Life is really freaking hard for everybody. It is in different ways. Life is very hard. And I'm reminded of the story, you know, guy thinks his burden is so uh, heavy. His cross is so large to bear. He gets taken up to heaven and 
get shown, all right, all these crosses, go pick one instead. And so, obviously, the guy, he sees these crosses that are towering into the heavens. He can't even see the tops of them. He sees crosses that are bigger than he wants to carry, like, oh, that one looks pretty difficult. And then finally he sees this little tiny one over in the corner. He goes and he picks it up, and God says to him, well, but that was yours. That's the one you came in with. And you never know what cross other people are, are bearing. But this is what TIV does to people is it, it robs them of their empathy, and so they think their cross is the heaviest cross of all, and it's all they can focus on. And then they see everything that doesn't go their way or anything they don't get, any setback. It's not simply, you know, some random event that caused the setback or not some person who didn't understand what you were pitching and so didn't want to go along with your idea or whatever. It, it robs you of this ability to decipher that and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work around that. I'm going to overcome that obstacle. And by the way, maybe this is why the crime rates are going up, folks. Maybe you got too many people that have been afflicted with this TIV. Maybe if everybody perceived themselves as victims, well, then they have moral authority to take vengeance on someone because I've been victimized by these people. And so I get to settle the score. I get to have I get to have my vengeance, right? And I have no empathy for that person. I'm going to assign the worst motive behind whatever it is that they're doing to them, right? I'm going to say they're doing it because they hate me, and they hate me because, well, I don't know, so I'll say color of my skin or ethnicity or gender or height or hair color, whatever. People start ascribing all of these different motives, and they have no idea if it's true or not, but it's, it's good enough for them, and it justifies their feelings, and then they can rationalize away whatever their response is to it. Maybe there's something to that. Is that going to be in the rep- – maybe that could be part of the way forward. Just spitballing. Alrighty, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got an email here from Tony. Says, Pete, Vilma Leak, she knows exactly what she is doing. That's why she's using that cadence and that quiver in her speech. That's her preaching voice. Yep. No, it's, it's fair. Um, um, let me re-rack this audio clip, because this is, again, a reference to uh, the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan's report from the LBJ administration where he argued that the decline of the nuclear family was the cause for poverty in the black population. Spend a moment, spend an hour, spend a week being rejected, talked down to, misled, non-respect. Trump supporters, uh, any of that feel like it applies to you? Just, okay. When you talk about a family, you're not talking about the black family. There again, she says, just assumes that when people say family, they they don't think black family. They think white family, which, I mean, that's 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 quite an assumption to make about uh, what other people think, let alone all people. No? The state senator out of New York wrote a book to dissolve the black family. To dissolve the black family. He wrote a book to dissolve the black family. No, he didn't. He wrote a report talking about how the black family is being destroyed, the nuclear family is being destroyed, and that is going to create cycles of poverty 
that the government programs will not be able to fix. He didn't lay out a blueprint. He was issuing a warning. Now, I don't know if she know if she knows that or if she was ignorant of that. But either way, she just spread a whole bunch of misinformation years ago. So we need to know our history. And I'm going to stop now, but I yeah, will you get first. On the block. You first know your history. You I first can talk as okay. long as I'm black, and that's forever. See? See that she's got people that support her at all of these county meetings. So she's she's campaigning. That's what she's doing. You realize, right? She's campaigning, even though she's in a safe district. That's what she's doing. So here's the. Uh, this is from a uh, a piece written years ago by Jamila Akil, writing at beyondblackandwhite.com, beyondblackwhite.com. And uh, this, she talks about the Moynihan Report, 78-page report written by a 30, then 38-year-old Daniel Patrick Moynihan. He was an assistant secretary of labor for policy in the LBJ administration. It was never supposed to see the light of day. It was only supposed to be distributed to high-ranking members of the Johnson administration in order to spur discussion regarding what policies could be implemented in order to assist black families with the task of fully integrating society. But Moynihan also was issuing a warning that the family was already suffering rates of familial disintegration, poverty, and out-of-wedlock pregnancy at rates far higher than white families. If something was not done soon, he warned that the problems of lower-class blacks may well become self-perpetuating if they had not become self-perpetuating already. Now, he got in trouble to the dismay of many within the administration, including Moynihan. The report was leaked to the press. Black leaders uh, were less impressed, less than impressed, I should say, with the way that Moynihan described the black family, using language that they felt was overly pessimistic, and which blamed the victim instead of blaming the racism of whites. And his use of a phrase called a tangle of pathology, which he was, that was when he, when he was warning about the problems of, quote, lower class blacks, that's what he called the tangle of pathology. And they objected to that, they didn't like that term, to describe the multitude of problems in which lower class blacks were often enmeshed. Before the report had even officially been released to the public, articles appeared um, attempting to call his words and intentions into question. You know uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton, right? Civil rights activist, graduate of Yale Law School, feminist, one of the few black leaders who agreed with Moynihan. She said as far back as the early 1970s, She had tried unsuccessfully to get civil rights leaders, most of them men, to pay more attention to the needs of black families. Some black scholars, such as Herbert Gutman, author of the book The Black Family in Slavery and Freedom, 1750 to 1925, he insisted that although uh, the black family has not come out of slavery unscathed, blacks were resilient. Black families had retained an extended family structure to support each other and to protect against the vicissitudes of life during slavery and Jim Crow. This is what Mark Robinson channels when he talks about, you know, reclaim your history. When he's like yelling at like the Republican Party, reclaim your history. And like, how dare you say, uh, how dare Democrats say that like I am this, uh, what do you call jelly backed 
people, right? Like, we survived the Middle Passage and slavery and Jim Crow. How dare you say that I'm some sort of snowflake, you know? Um, According to Gutman, the black family members should be praised for their adaptiveness in response to the conditions of racism. This insistence that there was really nothing wrong with black families, white racism was the real problem, that deflected attention away from arguments seeking to create policies to help heal the black family. If the black family isn't broken, then why continue to talk about fixing it, right? Because that also then means no funding for government programs and services. Which was the point. That was LBJ's point, right? That was the key. She goes on to say, Drugs became more easily and more widely available within black communities in the 60s and 70s. That led to an increase in crime and problems related to drug addiction. Mass incarceration rates of black males facilitated the creation of a pseudo-prison culture among young black men. And there it is. The culture of criminality. Probably goes back to those roots right there. Thrown in jail. Drug war. See, there's the, there's the lowercase l libertarian coming out of me again. Decades after the Moynihan reports published, black academic scholars and other public figures began to speak about effects of the disintegration of the family on black Americans. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.